Welcome to Health and Human Science Matters, a podcast by Colorado State University's College of Health and Human Sciences. I'm Avery Martin, co-host and digital media strategist. And I'm Matt Hickey, Associate Dean for Research and Graduate Studies. In our college, we make it our mission to optimize human health and well-being through discovery and innovation. But don't just take our word for it. Each episode, we sit down with people who fulfill that mission, our college faculty and staff. Today, we're sitting down with Dr. Susana Munoz, Associate Professor and Coordinator of the Higher Education Leadership Doctoral Program in the School of Education at Colorado State University. Susanna, welcome. Thank you. Glad to be here. Well, we're, we're happy to have you join us. It's our first episode of season five. Yes. And as we were talking about before we got on the air, we can't believe it's season five. These days we're going to get the hang of this thing, right? So, well, congratulations. Yeah. Thank uh, you. It's been so much fun and we're looking forward to the conversation. So in terms of big problems that your research addresses, we're, we're interested in you sharing what you pursue and why. Yeah. So my main goal is to create humanizing spaces for minoritized college students on our campuses, in particular, the uh, students that are undocumented or have DACA. This really stems from my practitioner days. So before becoming a faculty member, I was a student affairs practitioner for 13 years. And I worked in programs like uh, minority student affairs, leadership development, housing, trying to remember all the things, (laughs) diversity and equity issues and trio programs, which is, you know, for students that are first gen, low income um, or have a disability. And so my research stems from working in those programs, but not being able to serve undocumented students. Mm. And so it really got me on a pathway to then where do they get support from? Who who are the people that provide the support? What services are they able to access? And this was back in time, I would say, where um, there was very little research on this issue. And so I feel like I'm, I was actually doing something pretty new, you know, for our field. And we were only talking about it on a national scale. And I remember my dissertation advisor saying, oh, I don't know. You know, this is such a politicized issue. Mm. I'm afraid you're not going to get published. And I was like, I don't care. You know, I want to I want to do this. Good for you. And um, so that got me on that on that pathway. The other thing is that I'm also an immigrant. So I was born in Merida, Yucatan, Mexico. And I came to the United States when I was six years old on my mother's fiance visa. So she met my stepfather in Mexico. And so that's kind of how we got to the United States. And it took about uh, four years for us to get our citizenship. And I don't remember this a struggle like I think individuals do now. Mm. Um, I think partly because of my father's citizenship, but also it was a different era, mm. right? Ronald Reagan had an amnesty bill at that time as well. And so I, you know, I started to also unpack my own you know, immigrant identity and and what that meant and the fact that, you know, we didn't have status and there wasn't necessarily any indicators that we didn't have status other than the fact that my mother's sister passed away when we're in the States and she couldn't go back, you know, for the funeral. And that's something that many undocumented immigrants face, Mm -hmm. that they're not able to physically connect with a family that they left behind. So that's sort of a, in the nutshell, that it got me really interested in, you know, creating humanizing spaces for immigrants on our college campuses and really having these important discussions around how do we move our practice? How do we, 
you know, engage in teaching practices that are really humane to folks that are in your classrooms that may not have status. Mm -hmm. And so that's what I've been living and also learning alongside and working alongside um, these brilliant, magnificent student leaders and student activists uh, across the country. Yeah. And this aligns really nicely with our access mission. That, that, that Absolutely. you know, this alignment of, of values we profess and actions we take, mm-hmm. right, to make sure that they're not pointed in different directions. Yeah. Or maybe we say values and there is no underlying action, right? So right. I think bringing the two of those together is important. To, yes. To, we're a land grant, right? And we, yeah. we ought to take that, that responsibility seriously. Yeah. So. I think the action is super key. We can have the awareness. We can kind of, you know, um, you know, think about, you know, why it's happening. But if we don't have the action and accountability, right. then we're not going to move the needle in how we create humanizing spaces for students, well for all students, right? Well said. Yeah. You're here. So speaking about that action, tell us an impact story, if you can. Mm. What is a time where you saw your research and the research of your collaborators truly make an impact in someone's life? Well, I think um, when the elections happened in 2016 and shortly after that, um, 2017, September, you know, Jeff Sessions rescinded DACA. And so I got so emotional and angry and, you know, I wanted institutions to to take action. So I wrote an op-ed, it's an open letter to college presidents. And I laid out, like, this is what's happening on your campus. Your students are hurting. Here's some things that you can do. And here's the things that you need to continue to do. And, you know, regardless of what happens, you know, college presidents need to be really privy that there's students on their campus that are not able to access certain services or disclose their status because of fear. And it's up to us to really create a campus climate that's you know, welcoming, you know, whether it's in our classroom, in our residence halls, you know, that's conducive for students to be their authentic selves. And so college presidents need to be privy about those those issues, but they are also instrumental in pushing policy. They have access to these governmental liaisons on, on a state level, and they need to be saying, like, look, we need to live out our mission. And this is one of the ways that I'm, we need to be doing that is looking at the needs and wants of our undocumented DACA students. I've heard stories where presidents brought that to their meeting, that op-ed, and said, this, okay, we have a scholar here who's actually calling us to action. And this, how are we doing? And what are we doing to impact these actions on our campus? So that was a moment where I was like, okay, somebody's actually reading my work. And, you know, and I like writing those op-eds. And I actually have probably the same number of op-eds as I have publications like peer-reviewed stuff Mm. because I feel opt-eds really deliver a clear plan of action. They're asking folks to think in different ways but also to behave and act in different ways um, by asking different questions but also like what are the consequences if we don't act, right? What is that going to look like not only for folks that identify as undocumented or DACA, but for other minoritized folks, right? Mm. Or all students, you know, when we don't create humanizing spaces and act as humanizing individuals, we're also not allowing others to be their authentic selves, right? Right, that's powerful. It yeah. sure is. Yeah. 
Now, I'm going to touch on something that you've already alluded to. Maybe we can just develop a little bit further. I want our listeners to, to follow your journey about this discovery of a passion for research that can have the kind of impact that we've been talking about mm-hmm. so far. So talk to us a little bit more about that. The research part, and again, like it was a phone call that I got in my office and somebody that when I was working in the TRIO program said, hey, I have this student and I know you do these amazing workshops on academic success, you know, can can I send this student over? And I said, absolutely, send the student over. And um, they said the student's undocumented. I was like, well, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to do this in my lunch hour. Let's meet with the student over my lunch hour. I will go over some of the skill sets that I can teach and and just let them know that they have a resource person. Well, the student didn't feel comfortable. So here I am, you know, I speak Spanish. I'm I'm a Mexican immigrant. And I thought I had all these qualities and skills. And they still felt afraid. And so... That really led me to try to understand like the services, but also like I didn't really set out to be a faculty member. Mm. That was not in my trajectory. Mm -hmm. I was set out to continue being a student affairs administrator and to eventually be a community college president at some point. Mm. And so my advisor was the person across the nation known as cultivating like the most of the community college presidents in this nation. Mm. And so the research is what got me. And so I looked at the state context, right? We call the new Latino diaspora. So these are like states where they have relatively new newcomers of of Latinx folks. And so my research was really situated in the ski resort and very affluent. Housing was like outstanding. Like I don't understand where folks that work there, how they live, because the cost of living and the cost of housing is so pricey, but they do. And so I wanted to understand how individuals that come from this new Latino diaspora in this community, this newcomer community, how do they access college? You know, what are the resources there? What happens in the high school? You know, who's talking to them and how they're talking about them and how are they talking about not having legal status in, you know, in their um, pursuit to accessing higher education. So what I found out was that there were people, you know, there that they were able to lean on that understood. And when you have a community that's really highly resourced, there's some resources there for for immigrants to access in terms of college scholarships or, or just even resources, the library resources of how they get there. So I worked along with four women Mm -hmm. who told me their story about how they were able to access not only their story of accessing, you know, college, but also how they got from their small town community in Mexico and their journey story, right, Mm -hmm. to, you know, this resort area. It was fascinating, you know, how the the network of people that were really propelled, you know, them to, to come along, but also that there were also people that were available to support them. So they had this community and network already there. For me, I saw that it was really, there was a lot of assets that existed, right? right? And their home community was such an asset. Mm-hmm. And so, so it was really fascinating for me in terms of like developing this passion. But I think too, like, you know, as an undergrad, I wrote a senior thesis, right? And I wrote it on child labor as a political science major. Mm. 
And so I wrote my senior thesis on, on child labor. And then sort of a backstory to that. So my undergraduate major was political science. And I did a internship with Senator Harkin, mm. um, the senator of Iowa at the time. And I worked on his child labor foreign affairs desk. And so I did the child labor laws. And so so I was able to really like connect like, okay, the passion for research is really about like unveiling these questions that we live with. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, why is this happening? What does this mean for us? You know, how does this impact us? And I think it took that same, you know, inquisitive mind that I have to my dissertation. And I think that's why I became a faculty member because I left my dissertation process with more questions mm-hmm. and, and then answers. And I didn't want to stop. You right. know? So I was like, sorry, Dr. Ebers, I'm, I'm going to pursue the faculty route. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, which, you know, has worked out really great. But I still, I think, you know, having been a practitioner for many, many years, I um, I'm able to really, you know, see like, okay, the research is one thing when you put theory into it and then recommendations, but it's one and another thing when it's like, okay, how does this work with folks that are working in the front lines, with advisors, with, you know, dean of students, with, with college presidents and provosts, like, how does this work translate into what they do in their everyday lives? So that's sort of the think asset that I bring into my research is I see that there has to be a practitioner alignment. Mm-hmm. Right? right. There's a nice synergy between the scholarship and the policy mm-hmm. that I'm hearing. And it goes not we discover all the way back to your undergraduate days, yes. right? So your opportunities to work with Senator Harkin. Mm-hmm. I want you to talk to us a little bit about uh, mentors, influences, and this can go as far back as you like. We've yeah. had stories that go all the way back to second grade teachers on oh, occasion, wow. right? But you know, folks whose fingerprints you still sort of carry with you in terms of your day-to-day yeah. business. I like that, the fin- fingerprints that I take with me because I think they've really impacted not only my scholarship, but also my life, my heart, mm-hmm. you know. When I went to college, so it was my undergraduate years, Dr. Jaime Hernandez was the person that was working in minority student affairs. And he was just, you know, very lovely. He was from Mexico too, spoke Spanish. The cool thing is that he really connected to my mom. Mm-hmm. And so I saw that he was like, you know, because it's like, I'm the oldest of my siblings. I was the first one to go to college. And so, mm. you know, of course, everyone's going to have their feelings around, like, not leaving home. Yeah. And to to be clear, in, in Mexico, where my mom's family is from, you know, they also went to college, but they all lived at home, my cousins, mm. right? My cousins that are my generation, most of them did attend college, but they lived at home. So I feel like my mom was, like, don't you want to stay home? (laughs) It's like, no, I think I'm okay. Let me. And so Jaime Hernandez was one of the first individuals that um, I just sat in his office and just, you know, kind of doc, you know, detailed sort of like, I don't know if I can do this. Mm -hmm. Like Iowa State University is in a very small community, right? And um, predominantly white institution. And it's hard. It was really hard. And so he just gave me such good advice and, that yes, you belong here. And just the words just traveled with me, you know, throughout my undergrad. And so I became these, this, and I think this stems from my practitioner identity is that as an undergraduate student, I was an activist, right? And so I knew that there was, 
injustices happening. I knew that there was scarcity of resources for minoritized groups. And so I was always sort of pushing and pushing and pushing. So I was one of these undergraduates that, you know, protested, but also like I was in meetings with provost, you know, as an undergraduate saying, we want Latin, Latino studies. You know, when are we going to get Latinx studies? And here's why. And so because of our activism, we got Latino studies in Iowa State University. That is awesome. It was first the part of the first class. But I would say, like, Jaime Hernandez, one of the first individuals that taught me about, like, advocacy. Like, if you, let, let's fight together on mm -hmm. things that you need. And so having that support um, was really important to me. But also individuals in my doctorate career, Dr. Laura Rendon, who I got the opportunity to be her postdoc mm -hmm. for a couple years at Iowa State. And I took a class from her called College Student Persistence, and it was all about Latinx students. And it made me realize, like, oh, like, I c faculty can really have that freedom to cultivate what is in the curriculum yeah. and the power that they have. And that's the first time I was seen in the curriculum. And that was super powerful for me because it allowed me to, to feel not only empowered, but it, it just modeled for me that I can put the voices of people that have maybe been at the margins historically in my syllabi, in my curriculum. Yeah. So she was super powerful, you know, in postdocing with her. She, she was a Michigan grad in the early 80s. And so she would tell me lots of adventures in getting her doctorate, yeah. you know, and it also opened up a lot of doors for me in terms of, you know, the connection that she had with Michigan. So I was part of a lot of the Michigan dialogues on immigration at that time. So, um, but, and, and also Dr. Ebers, who is my dissertation advisor. And, you know, I didn't think a PhD was possible, you know, until, you know, a friend of mine says, you should just really call Larry Ebers and, and see what he says. And I called Dr. Ebers and he's like, you have too much potential not to get this degree. I'm going to do whatever in my power it is to get you to come to Iowa State and, and just, you know, get this doctorate. And so I did. Thank God for yeah. little nudges like that. Yes. I, I mean, know. Yep. I know. And sometimes, you know, it's I would struggle a little bit, you know, financially. And then, you know, there would be like the Barb and Larry Eber scholarship in my account. And so wow. just little yeah. things like that, I think, were super powerful. And I think I, I stand on the shoulders of these giants who I think um, helped me not only believe in myself, but um, believed in the impact that I could make. Mm. Yeah. We've talked the incredible business that you take care of, but yeah. what are you up to off campus? What are some of the things that you're passionate about and how do your passions intertwine between your professional and personal lives? My passions, you know, I, I appreciate this question because I don't really think about them as like passions other than it just make me who I am. Mm, I like um, that. So a lot of times um, I have a wonderful group of um, Latina women in my life and we're kind of scattered around the nation and we're the sister scholars. Mm. And the sister scholars, we meet on a yearly basis, sometimes a few times to do writing retreats, but also to come together and just be in community with one another. That's great. They, they're they so nourishing to me. And so we met when we were getting our doctorates. Mm. 
at different institutions. Mm-hmm. And um, so we are always conference roommates. You know, we're in the same field. So my passion is these, these relationships and people that I have in my life that really sustain me and that we're all yoga people. So, oh, okay. yeah. yeah. So we went on a wonderful yoga retreat last uh-huh. year um, to celebrate our birthdays. And, oh, it was so nourishing. It was so exactly what we needed. And, I'm yeah, I, I love hot yoga. I mean, mm. who doesn't love being in a 100-degree hun- <laughs> room, sweating and doing the same poses over and over? Um, but it is something that really s- mentally sustains me because I like to see progress, you know, so it's the same poses every time. So I like to see like, oh, I'm able to do this with my body today. Oh, you know, so I, I'm motivated by progress. I'm a Capricorn in that way. Um, <laughs> but my passion is really rooted in my community. Mm. And so not only as sister scholars, but in communities of color in which I feel like I can, you know, be my authentic self, but also have a pulse on sort of what is happening in our communities, what is needed. And so I think, you know, when I think about my passions, I think about the work that I do, not only like the relationships that I have with my sister scholars, but in in community groups as well. I do consulting on the side as well, Mm -hmm. you know, so I do a lot of equity and diversity consulting to different organizations that outside of my wheelhouse that really Mm -hmm. pushes me to to think about like, oh, I've never thought about like, you know, what does it mean to be in dev ad reform, right? Mm -hmm. And how do we center equity there? Mm -hmm. You know, what does it mean to be in a community college system and how do we center equity there or how do we get more adult learners that are, you know, indigenous, black and Hispanic into community colleges. So I've been kind of, you know, busy. Yes, busy, (laughs) but also kind of like trying to be the learner in these areas. You know, I don't know much about this, but I'm really interested in how I'm connected to it because I think we're all connected to it in some ways. So that's really what drives my passions is that I I like to learn. I like to learn new things and grow. So I think when I'm not growing, that's when I get worried about like, okay, I need to figure out some some pathways for me to sort of expand myself. I love this. This posture as a lifelong learner is such a valuable lesson. I want you to talk to us about how we managed to recruit you here. When when did you arrive and what was it about yeah. CSU that, that appealed to you? So I'm a CSU grad. Okay. I came to CSU um, in 1998, right after the floods, mm-hmm. right? You know, when I was at Iowa State, I worked in minority student affairs as a full-time professional and then wanted to get my master's degree in student affairs. And it was my dean of student who was also like, you know, you can actually you know, get a degree in this. I was like, oh, I didn't even know it existed. And so she's an Indiana grad. So I applied to schools where she either worked at, graduated from, or knew people from. So it was between Indiana and Colorado State. And Indiana was very much similar from to Iowa. So I wanted to switch it up a little bit. So ended up at Colorado State University, graduated in 2000. And Worked in Westfall as a hall director and worked in leadership development, which is now Slice. And so um, got some great experiences here. I really enjoyed my time, Um, met some phenomenal people in my cohort. And then um, so, you know, later on in my pathway, you know, after my doctorate, I did the postdoc with Dr. Rendon and then um, started a faculty position at University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. Mm. And so 
That was 2011. And so, you know, I loved my time as a faculty member at UWM. There was, it had an urban mission, you know, so it served, you know, a lot of students that were first gen. And so I saw the calling. It was the cluster hire for um, social justice and education. Mm -hmm. And I was like, this is pretty bold to have like, and I was really intrigued about how people got hired in the cluster. Yeah. Right. So I was like, well, let me see. Let me see what happens. And so I applied and um, and interviewed and it just felt like, you know, the right place, you know, Um, any faculty member who's on the tenured clock, right, worries about, you know, am I going to lose time? And I did, but not much. I was just pretty amazed that the same people that I were in my master's, you know, program were still here. Hmm. And I was like, wow, nobody leaves CSU. (laughs) There's got to say something. Right? And so it was really nice to be in community again with folks that really were instrumental in my, you know, early professional career to Mm -hmm. just also serve as a support system and as a faculty member in a really different capacity. It just felt right. And so... I think that was one of the things that I think attracted me to CSU is that I felt like I was coming home, mm-hmm. right? I felt like it was like a homecoming for me. It felt very familiar and it felt familiar in a ways that I was going to grow and make an impact. So, so yeah, so that's kind of why I came back home and decided to come back to CSU and being hired in the cluster hire, I have to say, we need to do that more often mm-hmm. because it allowed me to have a cohort of like new colleagues that you know, when we demanded, we wanted things to go different ways, we as a collective said, okay, on behalf of the cluster hire, here's the things that we, we'd like to see happen in our yeah. in our school. Or we had, you know, like support with writing. And so it was just a really positive experience being hired in the cluster hire. And in fact, I was like kind of thinking about like what other cluster hires can we do here? And I was like, why don't we do an HSI cluster hire, yes. right? Because yep. I, I just saw advertisement for that at UCLA. And I was like, why not? I think mm-hmm. that would be, I would think that would be phenomenal. So yeah. Yeah. So yeah, let's do it. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. Real quick, I want to lean into that a little yeah. bit. Um, referring to HSI's Hispanic Serving Institutions, mm-hmm. what advice would you have? Because I know CSU is in the talks for that. Yeah. You know, what advice would you have for an institution that wants to become that? Well, I had the privilege and honor of working at um, the University of Arizona mm-hmm. for my sabbatical for law last year. Mm-hmm. So I got to learn such great initiatives and structural ways in which we can situate ourselves within an institution to become a premier HSI, you know, and learning from that. And it's a lot of it became about branding, mm. about the messaging, you know. And so I learned about like how that happened, you know, how that was um you know, so they have a blueprint for us. But so I think here we need to think about, like, what is the framework that we're operating under? Yeah. Like when we say HSI, what does it mean? Mm-hmm. I think we need to develop sort of a common language or a shared language mm-hmm. around, like, okay, for CSU, here's sort of like the pillars of what we mean when we talk about HSI, you know, yeah. and what does that entail? And the other thing that we we need to really be strategic about, like not only the enrollment component of it, but the graduation component exactly. of yeah. it, because yeah. I feel like that's where 
we are lagging behind. Mm. It's like, okay, why are folks not graduating? And yeah. also, we need to look at our institution. I think a lot of us, like, how can we fix the student? I don't think it's the fixing of the student. It's more like, what is it about our environment? Yeah. What is it about our classrooms? What are about the opportunities that are here or not here that make students, you know, choose you know, somewhere around Denver or mm -hmm. other places. You yeah. know, we really need to be mindful about how we're not only the recruitment part, but how we're inviting folks in yeah. in that part. So that's one piece of advice. And the other component that I've been looking at is, you know, with undocumented students is they're counted in that number if they identify as Latinx, but how are they being served as well? Right. And so I think that unpacking the servingness and I've looked at community colleges, I've looked at different institutions, and what I found is that a lot of the labor that falls on, on individuals to serve undocumented students is not even written in their job description, Yeah. right? So I think we need to change that. But also senior leadership needs to perhaps have sort of a racialized lens or racial consciousness or equity consciousness around, you know, what, it, what do we mean when we're inviting students into our institutions? And if we understand that racism is an everyday occurrence, you know, how do we then unpack that for not only our faculty and staff, but our senior administrators to mm -hmm. get an understanding of how that shows up not only in our policies, but how we practice what we do here. Right. So, yeah. I love that. Isn't it great? Yes, absolutely. So what's a typical day in the life for you and your collaborators? And if you have a direct research team, you know, who is that team compiled of? Yeah. So um, I like working with students. And so I do have a research team and all of them hold the identities of either being DACA or undocumented. Mm. So um, and that's been sort of a very clear trajectory in my scholarship is that if if I got to know you in a study that you participated in, I try to invite um, folks that have been in integral in the scholarship to to be a co-collaborator in mm. the writing. And so um, so that's sort of like the the tenor, the vibe of a lot of my scholarship. And so I teach um and right now I'm teaching dissertation proposal. So mm -hmm. I have, you know, a number of students that are embarking in their dis dissertation journey. Mm -hmm. um, I also have quite a few advisees, so about 18 doctoral advisees. I didn't know that. Um, which is, I know, is a lot. Um, but I think one of the things I really enjoy about, you know, being a faculty member in my program, it's the doctoral program that mm -hmm. I'm involved with. Mm -hmm. So is to really making sure that that pathway is humanizing for them, right? Because, right? you know, you're a doctoral student and you're working on your, your research and dissertation, but you also need to take care of yourselves. And so, like, I'm really mindful of asking questions. It's like, you know, what, what did you do to take care of yourself this week? You know, how are you prioritizing things that are important to you? We try really hard to make sure our doctoral students don't come away from this program broken. Mm. And so we make sure that they're intact. We make sure that they're taking care of themselves. And we make sure that this doctoral program will always be here, if, even if you need to take a step away, yeah. right? It's my concern. It's better that you, you're whole and you're right, you know, among yourself. Mm -hmm. um, you're getting yourself, you know, healthy, um, not only physically, but mentally. That's more important to me. The doctorate will always be there and they can come in and enter in and out of it any way they please, but 
that's one of the things that's important to me is to make sure that this is a humanizing process and that all of our faculty are on board with like making sure and we're cultivating humanizing spaces for them. Mm. And that makes, you know, creating an environment that they show up as their authentic selves, but making sure that they, you know, this has a purpose, like your doctoral degree has a purpose, but we also need to make sure we're taking care of ourselves in this process. So that's kind of how what it looks like to be in HEL, the Higher Education Leadership Program. Yeah. That's what the conversations look like with my students. Um, and I also need to remind myself that I need to like practice what I preach, Right. you know, because Every class I end, you know, with be kind to yourself. And so there's times where I was like, okay, I need to remember to be kind to myself, yeah. right? So Listen to your own doctrine, right? Yes, <laughs> yes. That's incredible. Yeah. So to wrap up, mm-hmm. you know, we talked about the impact that you've seen your work have. Mm-hmm. Let's forecast five to 10 years from now. What do mm-hmm. you see your research and the research of all of your advisees? What, mm-hmm. are, what are you all doing? I hope for comprehensive immigration reform. Mm. I hope that we get to a point where we embrace the fact that immigrants are here to stay mm. and they are our next, the future astronauts, the future college presidents, the future Bill Gates, whatever. These are individuals that are going to make our country, that are continue to make our country better. And mm. so I feel like we need to really embrace our immigrants in ways that allows them to have a a life that is not rooted in fear and that they can create stable lives for themselves. Mm. And so that requires Congress to really work together and pass immigration reform that really speaks to the needs of the people that have been here working and living a life, being educated in our schools and succeeding in our colleges and universities. We just need to create a, a pathway to citizenship for those individuals that are here and want to contribute to the United States in any way that they can. So I hope that in 10 years, it's going to be more about not an issue of legality, like whether undocumented students or whether there's DACA students, but there's immigrant students there, mm-hmm. you know, that we also center that, that lived experience of being an immigrant and how we center that more so in who we are as colleges and universities. So that is my hope that we'll get to that place, yeah. right? That Because um, that's what we're asking for. That's what we're fighting for. I see students time and time again, you know, put their lives on, on the line to protest, to speak about these matters in their community. And it is far time for us to really lean in and have an awakening moment of like, who exactly do we want to be in this country and reckon with our, you know, violent racial history in this country in ways that begins the healing process. So, so that's my, my hope. I hope we get there because that's what we're fighting for. That's incredible. Yeah. And I believe that we will. Thanks to your work. Thank you. Appreciate that. I appreciate that. Absolutely. Suzanne, I just want to thank you on behalf of the whole college. Xavier and I really enjoyed our conversation today. Got a chance to get to know you better, to learn about your pathway. You're, you're such an exemplar, I thank think, you. for faculty, colleagues, and students. And I really am moved by your vision for what a humane education looks like. That really speaks to me. So thank you for coming today. Really thank you so much. It. Yeah, thanks so much. Yes. Take care. And that's the show. Thank you for listening to another episode of Health and Human Science Matters. If you want to learn more about our College of Health and Human Sciences, 
go to www.chhs.colostate.edu. And if you haven't already, add Health and Human Science Matters to your library of podcasts. Give us a rating and leave a review.